0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books and Irish Studies, a podcast channel within the New Books Network. My name is Aidan Beattie. I'm one of the hosts of this channel. Today we're discussing Camilla Fitzsimons and Sinead Kennedy's co-authored book, Repealed, Ireland's Unfinished Fight for Reproductive Rights. Camilla Fitzsimons and Sinead Kennedy both teach at Maynooth University and were also both involved in the 2018 campaign to overturn the Eighth Amendment to the Irish constitution, which had legally instituted one of the most restrictive anti-abortion regimes in the world. Dr. Fitzsimons and Dr. Kennedy, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: Um, so maybe if we could start with a very general question, why was Ireland a holdout for so long in Europe um, in terms of its abortion regime?
2: Well, I think there's there's lots of reasons uh, for this and it's a very long and, uh, and kind of complicated uh, answer. But um, Ireland, um, I suppose, is is a is a country that achieves independence from Britain after um, you know uh, centuries of uh, colonial colonial rule in the beginning of the twentieth century. Actually, this year is the centenary 19, uh, in nineteen twenty two, and um, so it is a state that's born out of revolution. Um, And I suppose it feeds into what's happening in Europe um, and globally um, in those early decades of the 20th century. After it achieves independence, it very quickly, um, the the state is engulfed by a, a very divisive civil war. And I think one of the things that happens is that kind of revolutionary potential in which there was a lot of feminist and socialist movements that were involved in the foundation, the struggle for Irish independence and the foundation of the state. Uh, When that state, uh, the the kind of the conservative forces that largely are victorious in the uh, in the civil war, um, I think, begin to use particularly women and the control of women uh, and that kind of and catholicism and a particular version of sexuality that is associated with catholicism as a way of asserting control in a very divisive uh, uh, and kind of um post-revolutionary society so it is in some ways about how um that kind of uh, middle class bourgeois uh, kind of sensibility and power is established in Ireland. So very quickly, the the uh, some of the legislation that's introduced in the um in the early in that kind of first decade of the uh, of the Irish independent state, it excludes women from juries. It it, it tries to prevent married women working outside the home, um, and that kind of uh, divorces banned contraception. Um, And then that kind of culminates in the 1937 Constitution, which basically um, solidifies a woman's place as um, in the private sphere of the home. And Article 41, which remains actually in the Constitution to this day, defines a woman's place um, as, uh, as that of mother. Uh, and 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 one located not in the public re- uh, realm but in the private realm of the home and that continues throughout the 20th century really until um the um kind of in Ireland i suppose the women's movement emerges really in the 1970s a little later than um, um other uh, european and north american countries um very tentatively trying to not, not legalise abortion, just actually fight for contraception to begin with. Um, and then I think the, the question of abortion is seized on by in the late 1970s as an area in which they can gain traction. The conservative right in Ireland, Catholic right, can gain traction and try and reassert its dominance, I think, in the face of the emergence of movements like um, the Gay Liberation Movement, the Women's Liberation Movement. And that leads to the insertion in 1983 of the Eighth Amendment into the Constitution, an amendment that basically states that the life of a pregnant woman is equal to that of the life of a fetus.
0: So, so there's a whole lot of questions here about like, like social conservatism as it plays out in Ireland. And yet when you look at even seemingly non-socially conservative people like Leo Varadkar were very, very hesitant to even move on this. So, so why were they also so hesitant to 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 shift Ireland's abortion laws?
2: Well, I think Ireland you know abortion there, there's a lot you know the legacy of the the sort of um, the, the campaigns around abortion in Ireland were so uh, were so divisive. Um, I think theres there was a great kind of political fear. On part of on the part of the establishment, Lee Ovrakar is probably uh, yet the best example of this. But none of the, you know, neither Fianna Fáil nor Fianna Gael, the two kind of centre right mainstream parties, neither of them offered any leadership on this, and I think. You know, sometimes I think there's a, uh, I I think one of the things that, um, you know, Camilla's books really kind of exposes here is the kind of myth that change in society comes from enlightened figures on the top. Um, And I think one of the things that the repeal movement shows is that it was the movement that forced the, um, uh, forced political change. It forced the politicians uh, to come on board.
1: Yeah, I mean, I might just add to that um, and uh, and just briefly mention the role of the Labour Party as well, because I think, you know, Leo Varadkar with Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil as a party do. Uh, I completely agree with Sinead in, in terms of the lack of leadership. But I think the Labour Party, who have uh, adopted a pro-choice stance since 2003, they also didn't show any leadership on the issue. So much so that Joan Burton, when she was tarnished, ruled out a referendum Uh, for the lifetime of the government that she was tarnished on despite opposition in the Dáil, particularly from Ruth Coppinger who proposed, who uh, laid down a bill or attempted to bring a bill to the Dáil uh, to coincide with Ireland's referendum on same-sex marriage to say, can we not look at these two issues together? And it was at that point that Joan Burton ruled it out and she was leader of a party with a pro-choice position. So I think it's just worth highlighting that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, if I could just maybe a follow-up question to that. People outside of Ireland maybe um, will, will perhaps be quite aware that Sinn Féin has been growing quite a bit in recent years. Um, so what role, if any, did they play in all of this?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm happy to to... To talk about that a little bit, I think it's important first of all to say that there were individual people within Sinn Féin who did play an important role at grassroots level. Um, you know, one of the things that that I have done and that that is presented in this book is findings from ordinary grassroots activists. So, I mean, the essence of this book is what was happening on the ground. What were people saying? And, you know, people did talk about attending training that was offered by Sinn Féin. There were individual people within Sinn Féin who were very involved at the grassroots. But I think as a party, Sinn Féin have very much uh, operated within a kind of a partition politics space. I mean, south of the border, Sinn Féin are considered you know, pretty left-wing, pro-choice. Uh, north of the border, they're often considered to be quite different and to have quite a different political base. And this has kind of played itself out in the way that they uh, have managed um, the introduction of abortion legislation and also the way they have behaved since then. I mean, as recently as 2017... So this is, you know, after the Citizens Assembly, which approved uh, or which recommended a a, a referendum after that in 2017, Sinn Féin abstained in a motion supporting 12 weeks access, which we have in Irish law that people can access abortion up to 12 weeks. So Sinn Féin abstained in that vote, the Committee of the Eighth Amendment. So they were behind both the Citizens Assembly, they were behind public opinion and they were behind... um, many other people uh, from other parties at that stage. As recently as March 2021, they also abstained um, in a vote put forward by the DUP in Northern Ireland, a vote which actually sought to limit services in Northern Ireland before those services have even been commissioned. So Sinn Féin in March abstained from that vote and there was a lot of criticism uh, about that from north and south of the border, not just from activists, but from from other political parties as well. And that pressure did seem to shift things. And more recently, they have voted against a a, a similar bill. Uh, so there does seem to be a shift in position. Uh, just the other thing to say as well is that Sinn Féin um, very publicly ex- expelled Padre Tobin, for example, in the run-up to... Um, the The vote in two thousand and eighteen, because he had a he was an anti-abortion perspective, and he went on to create Aintu, which is a, a political party in Ireland, a small political party with uh, just one seat, I think, possibly two, but who have a, 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 what they call a pro-choice uh, perspective. Not not a label that I I would support. So they've been very there's very. It's hard to know where Sinn Féin are at, I think, is, is the best thing for me. Certainly, uh, we, I, I am quite involved with the abortion rights campaign, and we have had some meetings with them in the last 12 months to try and encourage them to really make it very explicit what their position is and to try and encourage them to adopt a, a, a position... For the whole, for all of Ireland, because abortion laws in Northern Ireland, although not fully commissioned, as I say, what that means is that funding hasn't been made available, so there are a lot of problems with access in Northern Ireland. But the law that they have in place is it's 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 in many respects better than the law we have in in the Republic of Ireland because it decriminalises abortion in the first instance, and it allows um people to access abortion uh. To up to twenty-two weeks in in um, Republic of Ireland, it's up to twelve weeks, and there are other other differences in the law. So on paper, a better law; in practice, a lot of problems, and it's just confusing. I think I find it confusing to to get a full handle on where Sinn Fein stand.
0: So if I could maybe slightly. Change our focus. Um, your book is written with what what you call a reproductive justice model. Could you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah, I mean I think the, the the most important thing to do with the reproductive model is to begin with where it started, really, because this is an American model which began with a group called um, I think they were called African Women for Reproductive Justice. And sometimes what happens is terms like reproductive justice they get they get. Uh, people kind of can latch on to them and they can become co-opted and the history of where it came from gets forgotten. So I always like to to mention a group called Women of African Descent for Reproductive Justice who came together in the 1990s during the Clinton administration in America to really offer a very different perspective on reproductive rights. And there's really sort of three parts to a reproductive justice model. Uh, The first one is that... um, people have a right to have children and this is presented as the first right and this kind of speaks to that historical context as well because many people in um many african americans uh, as i have read were denied that right for many decades and this is something that this group wanted to um bring to the fore you know through through forced sterilizations through forced birthing within slavery through welfare uh, laws that that punish African American women for having children. So this they presented as the first right, the right to have children. And certainly I believe that there are some parallels with Ireland and our history in terms of mother and baby homes um, children being stolen from, from women in, um. we might come back to that in um, the last century. So that's their first right, the right uh, to have children. The second right is then the right not to have children. And this is where access to abortion fits in. So people have a right to contraception, um, to abstain, and then also to access abortion if they do become pregnant and do not wish to proceed with that pregnancy for any reason. And then the third right is the right to parent under conditions of your choice. And this is a really important part of reproductive justice approach because this is where you uh you know a more liberal model tends to almost lift the the woman out of her socioeconomic context and kind of conjures up this image of somebody sitting in a in a doctor's waiting room making this um you know weighing up the odds and making this decision as to whether or not to proceed with the pregnancy and completely excludes all of the factors that Uh, contribute to that, such as the quality of your housing, such as the type of job that you have and how secure that is, such as all of the many reasons that impede a person's right to parent in the way that they want to. So we have a housing crisis in Ireland. So we have many people living in um, hotel rooms for long periods of time. I mean, so a reproductive justice model would say, you know, think about... Finding out that you're pregnant unexpectedly in that environment, and how your right to parent is impeded in that environment, and see that as part of the choice, but also think about structural problems. So think about policing and the way that it uh, targets uh, some children over others. Think about environmental concerns and the you know even things like you know it's it's not unusual for people to say nowadays I don't want to bring a child into the world because of, you know, the sort of world that we live in because of environmental mm-hmm. concerns. So it's so it, it, is, it is that expansive, the reproductive justice model. It's really about seeing abortion as a very small part of a much bigger picture.
0: So obviously race uh, and racism are, are huge parts of this. And and that issue of, of race seems to hang in the background of your book. Um, both in terms of of this model but also in terms of of organizations you talk about like um migrants and ethnic ethnic minorities for reproductive justice so how how are race and abortion connected in Ireland how does that differ from maybe places like the US or the UK where where either race is more overt or is just presumed to be more overt
1: yeah i was interested i mean we we you know we had had some some um dealings before this recording, and I was interested in that question. It got me thinking, you know, particularly when, you know, you were asking, you know, how is it different? Um, because I'm not sure if it is different um, to other countries. Certainly our history is different. I mean, in Ireland, you know, we were colonised rather than being colonisers, as Sinead has mentioned earlier. Uh, and this has really shaped um our demographics in some ways. So there's always been Black Irish people, but it is in much more recent years that there has been inward migration into Ireland, which has changed the uh, the demographics. So, you know, I guess what that means is that there's, there is emerging research in Ireland at the moment about the impact of racism, and it's very similar to what is happening around the world, but it is emerging. We have, uh, you know, we don't have the same... Uh, indigenous Black population that the UK, that the US would have, for example. And I think that many of the problems in other countries are happening here. So, for example, last year, I carried out extensive research with an organisation called AMAL about the experience of, experiences of Muslim women in maternity hospitals in Ireland. And it was very much the same as what is emerging in other countries, uh predominantly women were experiencing negative attitudes there were some very overt experiences of re- instances of racism a lot of discrimination and we know that this impacts pregnancy outcomes there's plenty of research that shows that this people of color uh, have worse outcomes uh, in terms of pregnancy and some research has linked that back to negative attitudes. So I know there's a US study, for example, that looked at birth outcomes for Arab women after 9-11 and found that these had changed in the context of negative attitudes from healthcare workers, which were just reflecting, you know, negative attitudes more broadly. But I think, you know, that's only kind of part of the picture. I think why why race tends to, to come into the debate as well is because of intersectional features. I mean, that notion that, you know, The world that we live in, you know, people often have multiple um, inequalities foisted on them and people of color, black people, migrants are more likely to experience more than one, uh, you know, type of inequality. People live very, very difficult lives, some people. So, you know, there are many, many uh, people of color in Ireland are in direct provision centers, which is how we cater for people seeking asylum, we basically provide them with really poor accommodation. We tell them you'll be here for six months. And then many people have been there for years where their, their, their rights are really curtailed in many respects. We also have very many undocumented people in Ireland and these people are, you know, they're much more likely to be in a precarious job, as I said earlier. So the barriers then that are in place around abortion access impacts them more. So even the Eighth Amendment, when the Eighth Amendment was in place, absolutely my rights were impeded. I would have to um, get on an airplane and fly to the UK, or I would have to break the law and buy pills online. But what about the people who don't have the papers to travel, who don't have the money to travel, who don't have the connections to work out how to source illegal um, pills so that's why race comes into it. It's because of those kind of, you know, intersectional factors, as I say. I do think it's the best word to describe it. And just that kind of weight of, 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 of different, um, you know, different injustices that, that some people carry over others. So I think that's why race comes into it, not just in mm-hmm. Ireland. I think that's why race comes into it in, 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 all over the world when you talk about abortion access.
0: Sure, sure. And uh, if I could ask maybe one other question about that, kind of, that, the the ways in which Ireland can seem very similar and yet can be, can be different in some ways. Um, Looking at this, say from the US where I live, um, it does seem that the coalition that was built up was quite impressive, right, for, for for the anti, um, the anti Eighth Amendment campaign, right? You have this coalition of gay rights activists and feminists and transgender activists, and you don't seem to have this presence of like, anti-transgender feminists is that the case um do those people exist in ireland if not why not
1: yeah no i think you're right i think there is a difference there um and i think that's something that is you know i'm proud of within irish feminism i mean we have largely avoided the turf route but it is there i mean I suppose if you think about the UK, so the Gender Recognition Act that was passed in the UK is kind of seen as a flashpoint in that emergence of um, an exclusionary version of feminism. Ireland had its own Gender Recognition Act in 2015 also, and it, it passed without without any real controversy. So it's kind of after the fact then that people like Graeme Lenehan, who's obviously Irish, mm-hmm. um, has become a very high-profile um turf, for want of a better word. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he has there, when he has tried to um, gather support in Ireland, he has been largely unsuccessful. So he appeared on the Late Late, it wasn't the Late Late Show, I think it was a documentary on RTE, which is Ireland's national uh, television show. And there was a petition and a protest which, you know, hugely overshadowed his appearance. He also attempted to organise a a rally outside the Irish Parliament quite recently. And, and really, the counter rallies are always much more substantial, much bigger. And, and really, it hasn't uh, taken off um, in any great way. But at the same time, so the Trans Irish Union in Ireland have called for a boycott against the Irish Times at the moment, which would be a major newspaper in Ireland, because of what they perceive as an imbalance on transgender representation, and you know the abortion rights campaign are supporting that boycott. um other uh, people I've seen on Twitter, for example, who would have been quite you know high profile within the repeal campaign are also individually supporting that boycott. So it's definitely not true to say that it isn't there, but I certainly think it hasn't taken off like it has in other countries, which I hugely mm-hmm. welcome. Um, but, I mean, again, just to come back to that sort of intersectional piece, because, you know, there was, in 2018, um, there was a woman called Sayula T- T- Tukula, I hope I'm pronouncing the name right, who was a transgender woman in her 30s, uh, and she died in a direct provision centre because the state had um, put her in an all-male direct provision centre. She's a, a transgender woman. And, you know, she she uh, ended up dying there. So there is certainly uh, structural issues there around the treatment of transgender people, um, non-binary people. We don't have services in Ireland. Uh, so many people have to travel. So there's another situation where people are traveling overseas. Many people are traveling to the UK for treatment. So I think... Part of the, the coalition is that kind of similarity in, in story almost around not being able to access healthcare care in, in your own country and having to look overseas. I'm not sure if that answers your question. I kind of meandered a bit there.
0: No, that's great. Um, one thing that I, I was quite impressed by by your book um, is how how excellent a job you do and also how honest a job you do of of really describing the coalition that built that was built up, but also the tensions that existed within that coalition. Um, so could you summarise some of that, or what, what was at work there? Why were there tensions within the, the campaign?
1: I can't remember who's taken this. Is you, <laughs> <me. laughs> I'm not sure. I
2: can't remember either. Um, well, I mean... When, like I was involved in a, in a group called the Coalition to repeal the Eighth Amendment, which um, kind of was a precursor to Together for Yes, and I think one of the things that we did do um, quite well that Camilla's already talked about uh, um, is I, I think we did manage to over a period of like four or five years to bring together a huge coalition of people um, in a very broad sense. So there was a lot of di- um, there was a lot of diversity, I suppose, among how people. Um, where they stood on the issue of abortion. So we kind of approached it on the basis of the kind of lowest common denominator. You joined the coalition on the basis that you wanted to um, remove the Eighth Amendment from the Irish Constitution and to bring you know, services that allowed women to you know make their own choices. So within that, you had people who were um of the position like the abortion rights campaign for example who stood for free safe and legal abortion and then you had other organizations that just wanted to get rid of the eighth amendment and perhaps have a a less restrictive but we did manage to create a very broad coalition so that it had every everything from political parties trade unions to kind of activists and different organizations and and that kind of emerged over over a period of um four or five years Um, and then out of that um, the coalition the National Women's Council and the abortion rights campaign came together in the end of 2017 beginning of 2018 to form the Together for Yes campaign Um, and I suppose when you're um, there were I suppose kind of different approaches to campaigning Uh, different desired outcomes um, from the referendum in terms of what happens afterwards. We were all committed to the idea that we wanted um, to see the Eighth Amendment gone. But the government do put out a kind of uh, a draft of the legislation and the legislation is as we'll i suppose we'll talk about in a little while um the, the draft for Ireland's subsequent abortion law is also much much more restrictive than lots of people um uh, would have wanted so i suppose there was a kind of tension the tensions were emerging i suppose around um how critical are you of what, of that of that planned legislation so you're trying to kind of bring everybody together around one issue, let's get rid of the Eighth Amendment. Um, and I suppose then some of the tensions emerge. Well, do you say, yes, but there's also a huge problem with the government's approach? And many people feared by doing that, you might actually split the vote or you wouldn't have as much kind of enthusiasm for repealing the Eighth Amendment. So these are natural and important tensions in any, uh, in, in any campaign. And I suppose those kind of discussions are happening um, sometimes at the kind of margins of the campaign. And then the campaign is also kind of subject to all sorts of kind of outside pressures. Um, So, for example, you know, Together for Yes was constantly being told by the media that we weren't doing it right. Like the media and, you know, had kind of particular ideas about what a campaign should look like uh, and how it should work. And they were, we were constantly being told that the way that we were campaigning wasn't right. We weren't doing it right. And what they usually meant was that we didn't have essentially a charismatic man at the center of it, a leader, okay? This is what they kind of wanted. Now, there was a leader, you know, there was Gráinne Griffin from the abortion rights campaign, Orlo Connor, National Women's Council, Alba Smith, the coalition. There were three co-directors. So even the fact that it was split The the co-directorship, rather than it being kind of, you know, the the co-directors saw it as a kind of collaboration. People didn't like that either. When I say that, I mean the kind of mainstream media. And, you know, I I mean, Camilla's research, I think, shows how, you know, so much of the vibrancy and energy of the campaign was actually coming from the grassroots, the people who were out campaigning all, all on the ground. And that was where, that was what made, I think, the campaign so amazing, um, and uh, and so important, but that type of campaigning is usually kind of invisible to kind of the mainstream media, whose understanding of how you do politics is really about what happens in on, in the corridors of Leinster House. Leinster House is, is is the Irish Parliament, and something that wasn't kind of operating in that way was also seen as um, as kind of problematic. I know Camilla wants to get in here. I just want to add just one more point. Um, just in relation to what Camilla was talking about in relation to race. And I do think that really kind of if you go back to when that kind of repeal campaign emerges in the in the aftermath of, of the death of Savita Halapanava in, in 2012, I don't think when we were campaigning and when we were highlighting this issue, I don't think looking back um, that we attributed enough that we highlighted the question of race enough, that Savita, we argued that Savita died because of the Eighth Amendment. Savita did die because of the Eighth Amendment, but Savita uh, uh, also died probably because she was a migrant woman. Um, And I don't think... That we took that, we made as much of that issue and we saw that as central. And I think that that meant that when, as the campaign emerged, the question of race, the experiences uh, uh, of women and pregnant people of color did not feature as much as I think it should have, um, looking back now on the campaign.
1: I completely agree, uh, Sinead. And, you know, I used to work as a nurse. I think that's part of my interest in you know healthcare and what happens within healthcare environments um yeah and you know i think it's 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 something we need to really think about and dwell on and reflect on not just in ireland but but all over the world um but i guess i was just going to uh, comment on i think you know you're right Aidan, that within this book there is um you know there's some discussions about tensions and, and some differences of opinion as Sinead has 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 highlighted. But you, you really have to contextualize that and say, you know, this is a book that was speaking to activists, many who had been involved for many years. This is these were the converted. These were the people who had a high level of understanding, a high level of literacy around reproductive rights. The referendum was about removing an archaic Significant barrier from the Constitution that nothing could be advanced really as long as that was there, and all of the you know there had been research done by Amnesty International, there had been research done by together for Yes, which really showed that you know there was a substantial middle ground in many ways to be won over. i mean I think of my own family, there was splits within my own family, so i'm one of nine children eight Uh, women. And there was splits within that family. There was uh, one of the things that this research shows is that people outside of urban areas were saying that that there was quite a strong um, sentiment on the ground uh, against repealing. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, it's, it's so important sometimes to just remember just how ingrained that message was from very early age. For me, from a very early age in school, that that kind of Catholic morality that Sinead talked about was talked about in schools, was promoted. I remember when the Eighth Amendment came in, I wore a badge in favour of the Eighth Amendment. So it was, it was really, really strong within the psyche of Irish people. And I believe that... The, the single probably biggest thing that Together for Yes did in many ways was create a united front. And despite the fact that people that I spoke to asked questions like what Sinead is saying, should we have highlighted race more? Should we have highlighted, you know, the conditions for for? for poorer women, for working class women more. 95% of people said having a united front was the most important thing. And this was the thing that helped. And, you know, people who were against repeal, uh, they were split. They were all over the place in many respects. And perhaps if they had been a united voice, the vote would have been, would have been closer. We will never know. But I don't know if you want to comment on that Sinead, but I really think that that was such an enormous success to create that coalition. And I would argue as well that um you know we're we're due to have a review of referendum of the legislation um it was supposed to be last year there's it's kind of we're still waiting there's been a real dragging of heels there. But there has been, I, I would suggest, when the health minister in Ireland, Stephen Donnelly, initially announced the, the, the that the review would happen, which he had no, there was no way he couldn't because it was written into to law. Uh, there was an initial attempt to change what had been said, change what had been promised, which was on all records around the nature of that review, in particular having an, an independent chair. And immediately that coalition re-emerged. Immediately, all of that work that had happened in 2018 was still there. And straight away, all of the groups worked together uh, with a united voice again, and really said, no, you know, these are the conditions, and this is what we want. And, and it was, you know, it was successful again. So, yes, there were I think important debates, which shows the strength of the movement. Yes, I think we need to change moving forward in terms of, um, you know where the locus of power resides in terms of, and um, migrants in particular. Um, you know one of the criticisms that merge would have had was, you know, the Savita image was used a lot, but other migrant voices were silenced. So I think there's there's you know we have to do better. Uh, completely but I think that it is testament to the movement that we are able to have those debates, if that makes sense. That doesn't mean that that's enough, but I think it's, it's, it's important.
2: Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with that. I, I, I like it was like, it was, a, it was the best, uh, you know, that campaign, I think it is the best thing I've ever done in my life it, to, to be involved with it. It was such a privilege. It was, it was really important. It wasn't perfect, And there were all of those debates and discussions as that Camilla um, and probably many of them should have been more to the forefront. But um, it was an enormously important campaign um, because it involved so many ordinary people, um, mainly women who, um, you know, Camilla's research, I think, shows that how people often um, the women who got involved in the campaign had never been involved in politics before. And not only did they get involved, they got involved in leadership roles, organizing themselves, organizing canvassing that happened right around the country. And you can't just erase the memory of that. And I think in many things that's happened, like Camilla's mentioned, the review, but also I think, you know, um, last week, um, a young woman, Ashley Murphy was tragically murdered here in Ireland and there has been, you know, vigils and outcries for change. And, um, you know, uh, and I think a lot of that, the movement that has, that is emerging, I would say it's something that's kind of emerging at the moment. I think part of that finds its roots in the repeal campaign. And we've seen that, like that kind of feminist, young feminist activism, actually multi-generational. It it wasn't just young people, although they played a very important role. It was multi-generational. But I think that has put in place something. Uh, It has shown um, people, mainly women in this country, that they can actually change things, that they have power and that they can change things. And it's not about looking to enlightened politicians, that we have power. And that we can change that, and I think the demands are continuing, and the the sort of reverberations of repeal are continuing.
0: So if I can maybe ask you to kind of keep talking along those lines, obviously there's this incredibly successful campaign um, that does secure a quite like impressive victory in terms of like the the percentage of the vote that they that they get, right? It's something like two thirds to one third. Um, and yet the legislation then that comes out of it is very halting. Politicians are still dragging their feet. Could you tell us a little bit about basically what happens after the referendum?
1: Don't trust the political establishment. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's probably the most important lesson to learn. I mean, on the one hand, you, start, like you if you think about the referendum takes place in the end of May 2018. Um, in January 2018, the politicians finally come on board. They all come out publicly. Um, The only reason they come out publicly is because failing to do so would have damaged them politically, that we had reached a point where the majority of people wanted a referendum. And as we subsequently see, the the majority of people wanted um, to see the Eighth Amendment emerge on the eve of that that amazing results. You know, you couldn't move. Less you'd get an elbow from an ambitious politician wanting to be photographed, wanting to be out front. I mean, it was quite, you know, there was people I, like I, I had, I had sort of encountered over the years who would like literally turn the other way if they saw you coming and they were out getting their photograph taken. Um, So, you know, politicians, obviously, they love a political victory and they they, they love to sort of try and and kind of uh, gather some of the gloss of that for themselves. So that's kind of and then over the course of the summer, um, we see the kind of draft legislation being prepared. It's introduced um, in um, uh, into the Irish Parliament in in September 2018. And it's quite clear that despite that, in spite of like the massive support for repeal, the government have are, are insisting on introducing this really narrow really really, really restrictive uh, piece of uh, legislation and their are their their argument is that this is what people voted for this is their argument well first of all technically that is incorrect people didn't vote for a piece of, piece of legislation they voted what about what to do um around the constitution And secondly, while we don't know exactly what was in the minds of people when they voted, if you look at the exit polls, there were two really substantial exit polls uh, conducted um, uh, in the aftermath. Most people said the reason that they voted for repeal was was choice, that they felt that women should be allowed to make uh, a choice about what happened. And then you end up with this kind of legislation in which the government really shut down from both the anti-abortionists, but also from, um, you know, the kind of pro-choice position, any attempts to introduce any changes. So they insist, for example, on this three-day waiting period. There is no medical purpose whatsoever for a a three-day waiting period. The WHO have said that it is an explicit barrier to access that disproportionately affects migrants, poor women, people who have trouble accessing services. And they insisted on this, which they they call this kind of period of reflection. You know, women who who decide to have abortions don't need periods of reflection. They've already reflected on it. But this is, you know, they insist on putting this into law. It's impossible, nearly impossible, to get an abortion after 12 weeks in Ireland. Any attempts to make some changes around this were just completely shut down. And I think there was a sense that while the politicians we're happy to come on board for this kind of moment. They just really wanted this to be done and forgotten about, and they didn't want to go near it anymore. Um, I don't know, Camille, if you want to kind of add to that. but
1: Yeah, no, no, I mean, I completely agree with you. I think you've summarized it well. I might just come back to um, what you were saying about, I mean, the very tragic death of, of Avastin Murphy uh, last week in Ireland, and there are a lot of parallels with... Um, Savita Halapanaver, and when she died, in terms of the response on the ground, I would say so. Um, there was a vigil outside the Irish Parliament last week. It was really hard not to immediately remember vigils after after Savita's death, and, and many other things as well. I think that that groundswell. But I think there are other parallels that we need to be mindful of. And, you know, I'm very conscious it's a very recent uh, event, very, very traumatic and difficult for people who knew um, Ashling. But, you know, there are a lot of parallels, first of all, in terms of how um, politicians and the public reacted to Sarah Everard's death in the UK. So, I mean, I kind of feel that the Irish establishment almost got a little bit of a head start. So very quickly, um and correctly were calling out um male behaviour more generally we're calling out toxic masculinity. masculinity were saying men need to listen to women and need to look at themselves. But almost parallel to that, there was a sense for me in my community that they weren't listening even as they were saying that. So for example, I um you know, After repeal, as, as Sinead mentioned, the group that I was involved with, the local group that I was involved with, we set up a different group. Uh, 2019, we called ourselves Dublin 7, Dublin 15 Action Against Gender-Based Violence. And we have been really quite active in our in our local area. We've written to Leo Varadkar, who was uh, Taoiseach at the time, to now, so Prime Minister and, and Vice Prime Minister, highlighting 500 women, Uh, a year, are turned away from our local refuge. We organized an annual walk with women. We had our first one last year. Orla O'Connell from National Women's Council spoke at that. So we have been really trying to bring this issue to the political fore. But within the last week, um, you know, a, a vigil was called by Sinn Féin politician and his statement was, I mean, read the room. Like his statement was talk. He talked about his role in rescuing women from 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 domestic violence, and really, you know, I I just couldn't help but comment on that when Sinead was talking about that kind of you know bumping into politicians all over the place. You know, I think, I think the I I hope that the um. I mean, if there can be anything positive that can come from what happened in Ireland last week, it will be that we will, that framework that was established during repeal or that kind of grassroots movement will reemerge and will emerge around gender-based violence more broadly, which denying somebody access to abortion is a form of gender-based violence. So it's not like they're separate issues. This, you know, this is connected. And one of the, the stronger networks that have emerged after repeal is called... Um, The choice and equality networks. So there are a number of choice and equality groups uh, around Ireland who have already, as I say, been active on much broader issues than than this single issue. So adopt that really that reproductive justice approach that I mentioned at the beginning. I mean, I agree with you, I think people should be so proud who are involved, Um, and I do think that it has changed the nature of feminism in Ireland in a way that is you know really, really, you know, really positive.
2: Yeah, I completely agree, Camille. And just and just to add to that the other side of 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 the referendum, uh, the anti-abortion side, um, which, you know, not all sections of it, but certain sections of which Um, Let's say the more extreme sections of which have kind of morphed into the far right in Ireland, which is thankfully compared to other European countries, very, very small and very marginal. So I don't want to overstate um, their uh, their significance in Ireland, because I think there's been um, a very concerted effort to keep their, um, keep their power and influence in check, again, by a lot of these kind of um, community and, and um, grassroots campaign. But they are now, you know, they have kind of kept themselves going in some way around issues around abortion. And I, I've just, just in some of the stuff that I've been following um, in light of Ashley Murphy's murder, for example, there was a, a rally um, against gender-based violence organized by Rosa down in Limerick. And um, a group um, of men um, gathered, essentially in opposition uh, to uh, to pray what they called the male rosary, and they had a, a loudspeaker and attempted to drown out the vigil. Um, in um uh, to remember ashley murphy so the kind of catholic right and the far right is you know is very much on the kind of you know on that kind of toxic uh, misogyny that you see online again often associated with the far right and uh, attempting to give kind of political um expression to that um has a lot of significant overlaps with the anti-abortion movement in Ireland, um, as it does internationally, um, and I think um, that you know that's been one of the kind of more terrifying things that um, I think as we've seen in the last in the last week or so reemerge.
0: So maybe if I could end by asking about that question of like international connections, um, as as both of you've been saying here today, and, and also in in the book itself, like this is a very Irish story, and yet it's also a very international story. Um, both in terms of when the referendum happens and the kind of the global context of things like Me Too, um, but also perhaps it's a story that kind of highlights what's been going on in places like Poland and the US, um, where anti-abortion activists or even anti-abortion politicians in power um, are still quite active. Um, So if I could ask you to end by talking about that, what what do you think is the international um, importance of this story?
2: Well, the abortion movement in Ireland had all, has, has always been influenced by international events. So, essentially, the Irish, the Irish anti-abortion movement has essentially been funded uh, by the United States, directly and indirectly. Um, I mean, if you look at any of their kind of literature, it all comes out of the, the you know the right-wing anti-abortion movement in the United States. Like literally, even the kind of images that they use, uh, the, the sort of um, the leaflets, everything. It's all out of the, you know, the, the rights uh, anti-abortion playbook in the United States. And, you know, the, um, you know, it was uh, in many ways, one of the reasons why they wanted to have back in 1983, why they wanted a referendum was fear of the Roe v. Wade decision in the United States in 1973, which legalized abortion. The fear was that a similar decision could happen here in Ireland, and then Ireland had always been seen as a kind of, uh, you know, a bright light for the anti-abortion movement internationally. And I think one of the, the good things, I think, that is that what we've done is that we've reversed that and that we've shown that you can actually win a popular referendum by putting the experiences of women front and centre and that people will respond to that. And I think that's a really important lesson and also uh, as Camilla's as Camilla's work showing, not trusting politicians, not not you know, I think maybe for what's happening in the United States at the moment, a lesson might be to tread cautiously, to tread carefully with alliances with, for example, democratic uh, politicians in the United States. That might be something, a cautionary tale around that that could be learned. But also, I think um, you know, in terms of the emergence of the far right in, in Europe that you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, I think it—you know—it there's important solidarity work for us to be to be engaged in with women in Poland, and I think that was one of the things that there had always been over the course of the repeal campaign. Um, you know. Um, there, there was kind of looking to what was happening in Poland, looking to what was happening in Argentina. Our, uh, you know, women and, uh, and and pregnant people, activists in Ireland have always experienced wonderful international solidarity. For example, you know, I, we, we, I started by talking about the long and troubled history uh, between Ireland and, uh, and Britain. But at the same time, you know, all of the, there were thousands of women who traveled every year to access abortion and they received enormous support from activists and feminists in Britain who fundraised, who took them into their homes, who brought them, accompanied them, showed them support and solidarity as they had abortions, as they were exiled from their own country. So the, I think there's a wonderful, a powerful story of solidarity um, across international borders, um, and I think that is important work that we have to continue, not just about focusing on what's happening here in Ireland, but also focusing on the global picture, about how we can show solidarity with other uh, women and pregnant people in other countries as they um, join in their own battles.
1: And and I might just add to that as well. I mean, I completely agree with everything that Sinead is saying. Um, but I think we need to look as well, if you take you've mentioned Poland and the United States. So if you take the Texas law, the heartbeat law, I mean, if you look at the kind of additional detail in that where a person can now be prosecuted for assisting somebody in accessing an abortion, the same thing has happened in Poland where they are now trying to introduce this um, register of pregnant people so that they're saying so that they can identify the number of people who who miscarries, I think is the is the official line. I mean it's quite clear to me that both of those um laws are attempts to silence people like me and Sinead, but not us as individuals, but to silence the movement. It's to try. So, you know, the the example that's used in the press is that if you're an Uber driver in Texas, you could now be prosecuted. But actually what they're thinking of is, you know, activists who provide pills for people uh, because, you know, the dam has kind of broken in the in terms of how people, you know, have abortions now. It's you you take a pill at home. Ideally, obviously, with medical supervision, but so that you know, so so that that dam has broken. But it is that wider uh, relationship that anti-abortion activists have with the right, with all of the civil liberties and civil rights that they seek to um, to to oppose. I think is is really really important to highlight and illuminate. This isn't about, you know killing babies, as they say. This is about a much broader world that I think it's really important that that, that we fight against. Um, I think the Irish repeal movement showed that that tide can be held back. I mean, just before Christmas, a guy who last week wanted women to be allowed carry mace so that we can protect ourselves is the same guy that is... um you know, trying to put forward laws through the doll around fetal pain, which word for word mirror similar laws that have been attempted in the US. So that is, you know, another part of that, um, that relationship. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if, if I'm making sense, but I think it's really about looking to the big picture internationally and looking at, you know, I mean, capitalism needs women in a subordinate position to economically survive. It needs women to pick up the care load. It needs women to reproduce. It needs, and it needs patriarchy to hold that in place. So I know I'm using big sort of structural concepts here, but I just think it's important to to keep our eye on, on, on the structural issues, to keep an eye on, on what's at the root of, of all of this, which is for me to, to maintain a socioeconomic system that only a very small number of people benefit from.
0: So I think all of this maybe also points to is just how um, incredibly timely your book is and how relevant it is for for contemporary political debates. Um, Repealed is out now with Pluto Books. Um, it's a very scholarly book and a very accessible book, and it comes highly recommended. Thank you so much for, for joining us for this conversation.
2: Thanks very much for having us.